Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Josh Ma, the co-founder and CEO of Airplane, a SaaS platform for engineers to build internal tools. In 2020, Josh and his co-founder, Ravi, began exploring new startup ideas, and they were most excited about building internal tools for developers. However, after seeing how crowded that market was, the two of them began exploring other startup ideas, but they struggled to find another idea that resonated with them. Eventually, they realized that building internal tools was an area that both of them were most passionate about and where they already had strong founder market fit. So despite the idea not looking all that promising on paper and being a very competitive space, they decided that this was the idea that they were going to work on. The founders seemingly did everything right when they started out, including interviewing over 40 developers to better understand their frustrations and pains before they started writing any code. And armed with those insights, they shipped the MVP version of Airplane around four months later. But acquiring those initial customers wasn't easy. Their first attempts at targeting other tech startups fell flat, and their outbound sales efforts didn't get traction either. Through lots of persistence, experimentation, and customer conversations, they kept refining their messaging and positioning, and they began targeting and testing other markets. Today, Airplane is a seven-figure ARR SaaS business with hundreds of paying customers, and the company has raised over $40 million in funding. In this episode, you'll learn why the founders committed to the internal tools market despite the crowded competition and how they found a way to differentiate themselves. We'll talk about how they were able to interview over 40 developers and why they had those conversations before writing a single line of code, how Airplane shipped their MVP in four months, and why Josh believes that they could have and should have shipped the MVP even sooner. We also talk about why Josh thinks the playbook for selling to other startups doesn't work anymore and how they discovered other market opportunities and why word of mouth was critical to Airplane's early growth. And we dig into what it takes to build a great product that customers actually want to share. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Do you have a quote, something that inspires or motivates you that you can share with us? Yeah, I, have a, I don't have a quote, but maybe just in terms of what motivates me, I think that Fundamentally, software is just incredible force multiplier that humans, it's the most incredible force multiplier that humans have ever invented. And, you know, it's been a century in and uh, we're still in our earlier innings. And so it's very real. And um, Airplane is essentially our team's way of advancing a small slice of that. So tell us about Airplane. What does the product do? Who's it for? And what's the main problem you're helping to solve? Yeah, so, so we say Airplane is a developer platform for building internal UIs and for workflow automation. Um, the thinking behind it is that half of the software in the world is internal tooling that's used by businesses, right? So for every line of code behind your favorite website or favorite app, there's another line of code powering some internal automation, some internal dashboard used by engineering support operations. And so these tools are on one hand, massively important to the success of the business, but on the other hand, chronically underinvested in because, you know, let's be honest, nobody wants to work on these tools. And so our goal is to make it faster to build better software tooling for these businesses. So in terms of what we actually do on Airplane, you're typically a developer and you're writing the core pieces of code specific to your business. So a way to handle suspending a user or provisioning a team or refunding an order. And the airplane platform takes the core pieces that you write and handles all the rest. So assembling a UI around it, secure sign-on, auditing, notifications, permissions, um, all the boring bits that you don't want to do that we'll offer for you. And you know, there's a lot of ways you can approach the problems that airplane solves, but I think there are three things that make us unique. Uh, one is our focus on developers. We basically think at the end of the day, a developer is helping you build these tools, even if ideally um, it's more uh, independent. And so we're leaning into that and saying, let's make that, those developers' lives easier. Second, um, a lot of our competitors are focused more on UI building. We're focused more on a task-based approach. 
figure out the core task or operation that you want to do and let us deal with the UI. And then third, we tend to allow a lot more advanced capabilities around deployment and infrastructure. So our customers use Airplane to manage a thousand databases across 16 VPCs, right? We, we operate this very complicated distributed agent runtime uh, that you just don't see in too many other products. Got it. Great. Yeah. So I think I think the uh, experience with Airplane, the user experience is different to what I expected. You, you, you talked about some of your competitors and I've looked at those tools and and it's very much you go in there and it's it's focused on the UI and the drag and drop widgets and and so on. And so uh, I I tried out Airplane and built and deployed uh, the Stripe dashboard template. And it was very different in the sense that it felt more like I was in an IDE and there's like my source code files and and I'm I'm deploying code and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, well, this is a completely different way to tackle the, this problem. And I want you know, it'll be interesting to talk about why you took that that approach. But before we dig into that, just give us a sense of like where you are in terms of you know the size of the business, in terms of revenue, number of customers, size of team. We found an airplane about two and a half years ago, early 2021. We've raised 40 million over two rounds of funding. And uh, we have hundreds of paying customers. Um, and it's a small team right now of just 20 folks. So I'm really proud of where we come from. But definitely, I would say we, you know, we're in the early innings uh, of uh, what the startup could be. And, and revenue, where are you ballpark-wise? Um, I would say in the millions. Okay. So let's... Um, I want to talk about where this idea came from. Before we do that, give us uh, a little bit about your background. What were you doing before you started Airplane? Yeah. So previously, before Airplane, um, I was CTO at a startup called Benchling. And so Benchling um, was a pretty different space, although I like to joke that all these enterprise SaaS companies end up feeling the same under the hood. Um, but it was a life sciences SaaS company. So uh, we built, or they built, uh, systems of record, workflow automation, uh, design tools for scientists at biotech and pharma companies. So um, CTO there, my role probably changed every nine months or so. And so uh, a whole bunch of different things across product development, architecture, working with customers, IT, security, um, and perhaps most related to Airplane, right? I also grew, started and grew and ran the platform and infrastructure teams. Uh, yeah. So it's very notable how much of the team's energy and time went towards maintaining tooling or helping with customer um, issues. So we'd have a big go live at a pharma company the next day, but the like user import tool was broken. And that was like a SEV one, as serious as if like the main site was down, right? Because we had some customer success manager who was going to go on site the next day and work with a team of like, you know, 200 scientists and they needed to be able to get unblocked. So coming from that background, we really, you know, I really appreciated when tooling was good. You also really felt it when tooling was missing. And um, so that definitely led to part of our early explorations that eventually led to Airplane. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Like, how, how did you come up with the idea? Yeah. So I wish I could say that it was just like, you know, came to me in a vision. But really, you know, my co-founder and I took a lot more of a exploratory route. So he came from a product analytics SaaS background. I came from life sciences. Um, we just knew we want to work together. And we just talk to a lot of people. We would go through like an idea every like month, month and a half. Um, and so we started with like, let's maybe build benchling for finance teams. Maybe let's build a way to collect all that data in one place and help a CFO make sense of it. Um, and you know, there's a lot of comparisons to like financial planning tools or in the end, it turned out that like, and this would be a pattern for future conversations too. We just didn't fall in love with that persona. Don't get me wrong, I love finance people, I love accounting people. It just wasn't someone that we got energy from, really, when like um, the dozens of conversations we had. We also did a pass through life sciences, quality assurance, uh, documentation tracking, which is like, I don't know, I actually found a pretty fun area um, that was like upstream of where benchling was. But again, the problems that we saw, the, the personas that we worked with just didn't you know, as you went from conversation 10 to conversation 20, you, you got more and more tired of it. And so Ravi and I always took that to be like a sign. It's like, okay, 
maybe this is in the field for us, right? Through this time, we kept hearing, you would see on TechCrunch, so like, oh, this database company launched and like um, our friend that we knew was starting this like build, com- um, like CICD company. And so you start, every time that happened, be like, oh, that's really exciting. And we like would talk about it. And I think we were like, you know what? I hate the stereotype of like Silicon Valley engineer going to like build a tech company for developers, but we just love solving those problems. So we decided to like, the last segment there was like, okay, let's maybe spend time talking to luckily all the engineers and engineering managers that we knew. And uh, we did, we did like 40, 46 different calls. We would just ask, what are you building for yourself? That's one great property of engineers, right? They can build for themselves. What tools does your team use on day in, day out basis? What tools do you miss from your previous job that you know maybe was larger and you had built more infrastructure there? And so we were just looking for patterns of what problems were being solved and what problems they shouldn't have had to solve. And so that's sort of where the early days of a script runner came out. It wasn't the most common thing, but it was most interesting to us. It was like, actually, there's this idea of just like needing to run stuff that was originally on your laptop and you would, you know, inevitably forget to like close your database connection and you shut your laptop lid and you wake up to a page because your database is now, I don't know, out of, uh, anyways, it's, it's, I'm getting too specific, but enough of the people we talked to had some incident where some engineer YOLO'd something from their laptop and took down the company. And at some point you're like, okay, let's not do that again, Josh. Like maybe you should uh, run your things on this like machine. Here's a little service to do it. And depending on the ambition and time of the engineering team, you end up with like a few different kinds of products. But they all solve this core problem of like taking scripts, database migrations, maintenance tasks, and trying to like have a centralized audit place to run them. So Rob and I started unraveling that thread, and you know we're, we were very honest to ourselves, like this might be a toy. Let's just see where it goes, right? And you start building it, and you get it out there. People start using it, um, and eventually you're thinking, um, okay, this is actually the beginnings of a broader platform. Script running the scripts is really like your compute pillar, um, and it's like there's probably like a UI piece to this. There's a storage piece, and so what we're really building is just business software infrastructure. And we just like come into into it from this wedge. So, anyways, that that was like you know the process we went through. And at the end of the day, uh, what we really kept coming back to was the idea probably is going to change, right? Like, uh, I think people like to have these romanticized tellings of how these startups came to be, and um, I think a lot of times they ignore the pivots and the slight adjustments that along the way. For us, the reason why we did this is we felt like we could spend 10 years just solving problems for engineers. Engineers are this like, they're a little, you know, they like to complain and they have strong opinions about things, but they're, they're these like, they have these superpowers, right? And, I, you know, for us, what I think most more people should learn how to code and become, you know, pseudo uh, partial engineers. But they have this like crazy superpower of being able to take the building blocks that I, that airplane provides and just create these systems that are greater than the sum of its parts, right? The synergistic sort of thing. And that's just like such an amazing feeling. Um, and so, yeah, that's why that's why I'm in this field. I know you came up with this uh, concept of like idea filters to help you pick the right idea. And I think you, you've described that process, uh, you know, very well. But give us this, give us an overview of what, what idea filters meant to you and, and, and how you were trying to, to you know, what, what were the different lenses you were looking at these ideas to try and figure out the right one? I, I think the, the simplest thing was this like, yes or no of, do I see myself spending 10 years on it, right? Because like people like to think of it as like a four-year thing, well, like maybe IPO and then I'll be done. But like for a founder, that, does, that story keeps going, right? It's a 10-year, 15-year kind of journey. And so I found that was the one question that just filtered out most things for me, right? And it's like, can I imagine myself, you know, it's 2033, am I still, and I'm still working on this, am I still excited? And so that often was crystalline or concrete enough uh, for me to like say, no, that's not it. Secondary was like, when we're talking to people, did we get energy from the conversation, right? Because um, it's really tied to that same idea, but just imagine like a day of sales calls and you're just on the phone with, you know, uh, CFOs all day, around the phone with engineers all day. At the end of it, are you like, wow, that was great. I met so many cool people. Or are you like, 
you know, oh, you know, thank goodness the day's over and let me go get dinner. And so um, it, it really just came down to that. You know, there's nothing more specific about like TAM or like, you know, um, what's your like specific um, power or advantage. It was just like, do we like working on this? Because really like within the, between the lines, there's all these like other details of like how you execute, how you hire and how the market even changes. And so it's really hard to like look at those this early on. So it just came down to this very core emotional feeling. I mean, CFOs can be cool as well. Sorry, they're they're cool. They're really cool. I I, I just think <laughs> the problems that one was really the problems that I didn't find cool. Yeah, I get you. I, I think it's like there's a certain type of conversation you have with a different, you know, type of person. And it's either something that draws you in because the more you hear about it, the more you want to know about it, the more your brain is spinning with ideas on how you could solve it versus talking to somebody where you get the problem, you can solve it. It just isn't that, that energy just isn't there to just naturally kind of keep this thing going day in, day out. Yeah, I think the more like, the more, what's it called? By the book word for this would be like founder market fit, right? It's like, I'm using this as a litmus test for it because really what's happening is I'm hearing about your problems. I, I know about my skills and my experience. And do I get excited about applying my background to these problems, right? So a lot of the like the most on fire CFO problems were at the time that the people I talked to was like getting your um, team to like enter in their data correctly or like it was a lot of human and people problems. It wasn't like, oh, I have a big data problem around and I don't have the infrastructure for it. Right, so this the nuance there is it's really just how the the founder connects to those conversations. I want to talk a little bit about you. You said you went out and talked to, you know, engineering folks that you knew. I, I talked to a lot of early stage founders who, who are reluctant to have those conversations because they feel like I haven't figured out what I'm solving or or my or my solution or I don't have an MVP or something like that. And really, at this point, it's really more about no one cares about your your idea, right? They want to talk about their problems. And I think that's what you were doing. But just help us understand, like, how, how are you framing these conversations that got, you know, 40, 50 people saying, yeah, I'll give you time to, to chat more about it? Um, I mean, people like to talk about their problems, I think. Uh, people like to, like, be heard. Um, and uh, if you're respectful about their time and you're actually listening, I, I think, like, I don't know. I, I'm also very pr privileged to have worked with a lot of engineers and gotten to know a lot of folks uh, in the industry. So there's definitely parts of both. Um, but yeah, it's like it's like you're saying, right? Like it's the goal is not to talk about me or what I'm building. Like we didn't sell anything in most of those calls. Maybe towards the end we started pitching the idea. Um, it's really just about deeply understanding the what are the on fire problems that the people you're working with um, are going through. And so that's always you know we start the conversation like what's bothering you right now. Right, like what? What did you guys? What was in your last sprint retro? And what, like, what were the main issues? Like, why did you miss your last deliverable? Um, or uh, what tool just saved you? Right, this last like week. Um, so just talking about problems and either solved or unsolved, I think often led to like pretty interesting places. And some of it was just to challenge the assumptions that we had because we all had engineering backgrounds too. So yeah, it, there was nothing more special than that. Right, at some point you have a set of questions like like. Okay, this like script running is interesting. Let me maybe ask more about like when the last time you did a database migration was or what the last few incidents were. So you start getting a sense for that. You evolve your question set over time. But yeah, it's nothing. It's not rocket science. You just had to put in the time. I, I know this is this this space of building internal tools is is becoming quite a crowded space. And I'm not sure if it was that different back in, in 2021. So how much of that was a factor for you? Did it hold you back from committing to this idea? And 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 how did you get over that? Um, the short answer is no, because I actually like to tell like our team, candidates, just folks, like this space is actually the oldest space, right? Like the first databases invented, or like when Oracle came out of the database in like 1978, the first software built on it was like order management, HR, HR data management. Right. And like the original enterprise software was internal tools. And so in that lens, like we're coming in this lineage of like some legacy, some not enterprise software building. 
And then within that, we were not trying to do internal tools at all. We just wanted to like let your scripts run, right? And so, and then like this internal tools like buzzword came along, and we figured that like if the market was going there, let's at least like match that, and so people could identify more quickly what we were selling. But like, it's interesting because like we, I feel like we live in this bubble of like tech and VC, and if you talk to like a software shop in the Midwest. They have no idea. Like this term doesn't exist in their vocabulary, right? Like they don't think about it this way. They just think about the software that they've built, um, and uh, and so a lot of times, the world's big, and these companies have never heard of us. They haven't heard of our competitors, and at the end of the day, we're just trying to convince them that airplane buying airplanes better than building themselves. So a lot of times, it's a build versus buy. So coming to the original question, right? Like. That's competition. It comes and goes so dynamically, right? That it doesn't really, you know, if you talk to all the like productivity software companies, right? Um, like the Asanas, the Monday, or if you look at like product analytics, some of the most competitive spaces, I bet the early days, and I know for some of those, the early days, like they never saw each other, right? And so it's because the world is so big that like it really depends on both how many competitors there are and how big the space is. Um, so I think, I just think it's really dangerous to like make decisions based off of competition. So you said that the biggest decision that you, or obstacle you had to overcome was build versus buy. Selling to developers uh, kind of feels like, you know, the, the build choice is the natural way to go. How much of a struggle was that for you? It's mixed, I think. So, for example, there's some t- companies I've talked to where, like, you're spending a million dollars a year in salary on internal tool development. Great. You're ahead of the curve and, like, you have engineers who are vested, right? I still think Airplane solves a certain set of qu- problems better than if you were to do it yourself. But from a pure ROI perspective, it's potentially not clear if, like, you're already investing that much, right? You might as well just, like, put that onto the team store map. Luckily for us, I think. And I mean this in the most terrible way possible. People don't like to build what airplane is building, right? Like we're doing all the boring bits. We're doing SSO and uh, audit trails and uh, you know groups and notifications and like a Slack integration. And like don't get me wrong, for airplane it's really fun because we get to think about this at scale. But for our customers, it's the last thing this like product engineer wants to do, right? And so there's that like arbitrage of interest that comes in. It's so so compared to like I think. Some of the other dev tools we're seeing, uh, it's definitely harder because in those cases there's no like, not necessarily always an established budget, or you know there's no like RFP that goes out for this specific kind of product. But uh, it's it's not uh, it's an easier pitch when you say okay you could build this yourself, but do you really want to? Okay, so you you eventually commit to this this idea. How long did it take you to build or ship that? the first sellable version of the product and, and how long did it take you to get the, you know, the infamous first 10 customers? So we started working on this like December 28th of 2020. So essentially right before the new year. And we opened in public beta uh, in April. And so it took us four months to get there. And then we started charging for the thing in July and through my learning all this, I really just think we could have shipped even faster and we would have learned even faster and we would have gotten to our first 10 customers even faster. Um, because what we did was at first you had this like, I came from Benchling, very enterprise heavy, right? Very pilot and state of, state, SOW, statement of work heavy, right? Like a lot of the work he did was like one big customer and you really understood their needs and you like deliver for them. For airplane, horizontal tool, dev tool, like, we tried doing that, and there were a lot of misses on like, oh, you know, big company X is interested. Let's do a call, and then like, sort of fizzling out. And so, really, we should have, in hindsight, just launched the damn thing because you just get customers coming out of the woodwork, right? Like our early customers, like they weren't big contracts, maybe a few hundred dollars a month, but like they were in South America, they were in the Philippines, they were in the Midwest, some were in Silicon Valley, and so you just getting yourself out there especially for a horizontal product, which is a lot more valuable in terms of finding those customers, but also learning from those customers. So I would have done it way faster, way earlier, and uh, way more iteratively. You, you said you started charging in July. 
how long did it take you to get the first 10? Like, what, did they just switch when you when you turned on billing? It wasn't glamorous. It was like in the first week, maybe one or two. You know, the third week, like a few self-served on. So maybe in the first like three weeks is how we got our first 10, right? But it's, it's because it was a mixture of like someone put down their credit card for $50 a month, right? So it was a it was a definitely a trickle. It's not like you know just a open the floodgates. So so once you ship this, you just said, you know, here's the beta version of the product or something, and it's free for now. We're going to charge start charging at some point, so the expectation is set, and then at least you had people using it. For us, charging was really just like uh, I'm just curious to make sure that they're not just using us for free compute, right? And so we wanted to just like just know. Um, do I think it was like a critical business decision? I don't think so, right? Because I think we were always selling B2B. So it was really just like a, let's just test this just to make sure, but also to actually look more reputable, right? So if you're connecting this to your production d- database, you don't want something that's in beta um, necessarily. And so we were like, let's just make this look like a real product and let's just start charging. So it was it was more of that thinking. Okay. Uh, you said you, in hindsight, you feel like you could have shipped the MVP sooner. Yeah. Was that like just building it faster or are you saying we could, we could have stripped it down and focused on, you know, one or two specific things better or we did try to do, we tried to do too much with the MVP? What, how do you think you could have done that differently? No, I mean, definitely not like, I think it's every manager's like dream that is like, oh, we could just simply done it faster. Um, it's really more about scoping, right? Um, I think we went a little further on some bells and whistles and like we, we should have just still done it anyways, but the difference is in that time while we're building the future things, you could have gotten people using it, gotten feedback on the earlier things. And so uh, it's more about scoping and when you, uh, allow access versus, uh, and so I think there's some things where we just sat on too long. We were like, uh, you know, it'd be really great if you could do this too. And it's like, well, does that prove your core hypothesis? of this being a useful tool, maybe not. And so um, it's very hard. It's only easy to say in hindsight, right? Because at the time you're like, oh, I get it. I'm supposed to be like very minimal in my scope. But like, I think this is going to be a key blocker for A, B, and C. So I'm definitely saying this with like hindsight bias, but um, it's still true, right? We should have shipped it earlier. Had you raised any money at that point or? We had. Uh, we're a weird company, I'll say. Like, uh, we've had the privilege of knowing the folks at Benchmark um, through our exploration. Uh, Robbie and I were both uh, yeah, entrepreneurs and residents there, and so we raised a um, our first round right out of the gate, right? And so it sets you off on a different path, right? Um, you know, you're raising it. Um, you feel like you, you can hire people faster, right? So we hire our first um, two engineers in like the first month, and so you end up like building a little team before you start building it, building the whole product. Um, so yeah, we, we had raised pretty early on. Let, let's, let's talk about what else you've done to acquire customers. Uh, when you and I were talking about this earlier, you said, you know, word of mouth was one of the, the most kind of like, it was kind of like the most important thing let, let's talk a little bit about that. Like, wh- why do you think, what does that mean to you? And, and how do you get word of mouth about, you know, your product? Yeah, I, I think it's because it's like, you often think about the go-to-market of your product and you start thinking like, if only we just made this part good, like we'll just be able to like sell it. And it's sort of that like, at the end of the day, like if you're on engineering or product design, you're just like, just build a good product first, right? Like solve your customer's problems and they might not just come, but like it is actually, I think, step one. And so um, it is a bit of a circular affair because you, as you get more customers, you start understanding their problems better and leads to like the next customer. And so there is like an iteration here. But having a good core product means that someone who is at a startup that maybe adopts your thing, talks to their friend who works at a bank and says, hey, you should check out Airplane. They're really cool. Um, and so... Uh, this word of mouth is, you know, I'm saying very obvious things, but it's just easier to like say than to actually once you feel it and understand it more. And it's also really hard to measure and understand, right? Um, but at the core, like, just don't forget that you need to build a good product and solve customers' problems because then the subsequent things you layer on um, get much easier. 
Um, the analogy is like if you have a funnel and you're trying to really like put as much water as you can at the top of it, but just leaking at the bottom, right? Um, it's just, you're just wasting your effort. So definitely get the core product right, build a great experience, deliver value, very basic things, but you, you really have to do that before you start figuring out how to, how to sell it. So part of this comes from the the 40 something interviews you did with developers before you sort of figured out what you were going to go and build. What did you do beyond that? Were you Were you doing anything to regularly collect feedback or, you know, as you iterate to make sure you're building the right thing? Were you having conversations or were you kind of more looking at how people were using the product or a combination of both? Like, how did that, how did that clarity keep coming in terms of we're getting every, every time, every week we get super clear about, more clear about the problem the customers have and that we're building a better product? The first thing I'll say is like, we... Once you did that early research, you sort of had to throw it all out. Meaning, like, now you have a real product, you have real customers. Like, that got you to your initial hypothesis. But now you're really looking at the new data that's coming in, and you should be thinking about that. Because, like, customer feedback is going to, like, trump what someone told you on a, phone, on a Zoom call, like, a year ago, right? And so we quickly, like, discarded those and started looking at, like, the actual usage we were getting. Um, I will say, like, this is really hard. I don't think we, like, did a fantastic job of this. It's just always, there's always a bit of a cloud of war, uh, fog of war here, right? Like, a lot of times you did have to just rely on your gut instinct, on, like, he- reading between the lines of this feedback here and this lack of interest here um, and this, like, happy usage here. As a founder, this is, like, where I think we need to go. And a lot of times I think I wished I had, like, learned faster or you pushed even harder on it. But, you know, to answer the question, it is just a lot of just talking to customers, right? Either in sales calls, pitching them, or getting feedback, right? Even today, like, I meet at least sometimes monthly, sometimes quarterly with, like, the top 25% of our customers, at least, right? And so it's just really important to talk a lot with your customers and really understand them and just understand the problems you're solving. So, there's no silver bullet for that, but um, yeah, just keep iterating. So content marketing is another area that's helped you to acquire customers. What exactly have you done there so far? We thought about it in a f- two various ways. One, we, we called it quote unquote, thought leadership internally. This is when a lot of the audience that we were selling to were like startups, right? And so my co-founder and I would write blog posts about our experiences and um, the second category is more around developer tools and certain problems that we saw engineers facing that were potentially adjacent to our space. And at the end of the day, it's like there's a lot you can read on the internet about content marketing. So I'm not going to repeat that here, but you figure out what problems your customers or your, your potential customers are facing and you try to get to them, right? You try to give them that information. It builds awareness, it lets people find you when their intent is more accurate, right? Um, as opposed to like trying to do a lot of manual reach outs. This is especially true for, I think, you know, horizontal productivity or horizontal dev tools where timing is really important. And so you can look at a company that looks exactly like what you would sell into, but I don't know, maybe they haven't started hiring out their um, support team or they have and they already like figured out some hack to do things or, um, you know, there's, there, there's some churn in the leadership and they're not really thinking about like building this, buying this platform right now. So it's very hard to get timing right. And so instead, you really just want to get yourself out there and let people click when they fit you. So in terms of ideas of what to write about, if you're talking to customers about their problems, you probably have a long list of ideas that, you know, you can potentially be, be writing about. Like, were you doing anything else in terms of SEO or were you just like, we're just going to publish, you know, high quality content and, uh, you know, hope it starts ranking because we're talking about specific enough problems or something or long tail keywords? There, There is a level of like technical SEO skill that you have to build up, right, as you do this. So, no, it's not as simple as like just write good content, they'll come. Um, you do, like, you know, we use uh, RFs a lot, right? It's a good tool for understanding uh, keywords and how you're performing. Um, you have to, like, do a bit of research on uh, which keywords are ho- highly contested. And you want to make sure you SEO optimize 
your your content, right? I uh, can't say I'm an expert on it. I've definitely learned a lot about it in the last few years, but um, yeah, it, it, you have to like you have to put in the time and get that right. If I understood this correctly, you were, I, I guess, focusing uh, a lot on like top of funnel type problems, and you said problems that were adjacent to what you're solving in terms of it wasn't, you know, every piece of content wasn't this is a problem that you're trying to solve. This is how airplane solves it for you but it was more about maybe you do have content like that too but a lot of the other content was like okay you got this problem in terms of building an internal tool here's some of our thoughts on on how you could be solving this problem doesn't necessarily you know translate to using airplane this afternoon but hopefully you'll you've now got some awareness of of who we are and what the product does. Yeah, it, 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 it's just both is how we approached it, right? Like ideally, they would all be high intent, right? Directly related kind of problems. And I think like, you know, we we can and should invest more there. But at some point, you're like, also, let's also add in things that are lower intent, but that'll build some more visibility and awareness. And maybe it's easier to get traffic on those, right? So I think you have to experiment. It depends on your business and depends on who you're selling to, right? You know, if you're like an ATS or like doing hiring, it's a lot easier to just target direct like hiring problems. Um, so yeah, you have to experiment, figure out what's right for you. Nearly every founder I talk to, when I say, "Well, what did you try in terms of growth that didn't work?" they always say ads. Right? I, I don't know. I don't know. I can understand why, but that was one of the channels that that has worked for you. So where were you spending your ad dollars and? I will say it has worked in a binary degree. It is not working in a, I think it could be better in a sense, right? Like the beauty of Google's business is you can spend as much as you want on them and they'll figure out how to like show your ads, right? And then you, you'll measure the clicks, you'll try to attribute it and you'll try to figure out, you know, if this is worth it. For us, I think it got more complicated because all we had to do is we'll close, like our ACV is like 20K, right? And so all, if we could spend 20K a month if every month that got us one deal out of ads, it was like break even. And so you could spend 50K and get three deals out of it and still be unsure if it was like worth it, right? And so for us, it's a very like, very broad, fuzzy zone. I will say it did get our first like five largest customers in the door. And so it is, but it is also not, you know, you can't mistake that for product market fit is what I'll caution, right? Like, it's just not a very, you can't double that to 100K and just get double the number of deals. So it's a very valuable way of getting those customers and learning from them. Um, but I'm not happy with that as like, you know, our go-to-market per se. And and just because you could spend 20K to acquire a customer doesn't necessarily mean you should be spending 20K to acquire them. You could spend half of that, get a high-ranking blog post that just pays off almost indefinitely, right? So there's definitely higher ROI ways to do it, um, but there's some low-hanging fruit there at the same time. Uh, you, you mentioned something about outreach, and one of the areas that didn't work in terms of growth was, was sending cold emails. What, what did you try there? And, and sort of looking back at what you've done so far, like why do you think that hasn't worked for you? I wish I knew why it didn't work because then it we would probably get it to work. Um, I think the short of it's like my understanding is this is something you have to really experiment with. Um, yeah. And at some point it'll click. For some industries it doesn't work, for some it does, right? And it's tempting because like you talk to a few peers where they're like, yeah, the first like 10 million I got was all like 90% outbound. Um, and you're like, oh man, like maybe that should work for us. Uh, but you know, um, someone wants to only like, Josh, you're going to say, let's do outbound. You're gonna try it for a month, and it's not gonna work, and you're gonna and you're gonna decide like, oh, outbound isn't it? But really, it's like the thing you tried, the the persona you're trying, the message you're trying, the way you're like, I don't know, the way you're phrasing in your emails just wasn't it. But it's like very hard to tell what parts of that didn't work, right? And so I know that it's not working. I know that it might work, and I think it's gonna take a bunch of experimentation uh, to to see how we can get there. Um, so it's very frustrating. It's a, bit, it's a bit of a black box, right? But um, so I think of it as something we're going to just keep experimenting on. Yeah, I, I, it's such um, you know, I, I, I tend to roll my eyes when I, you know, you see stuff online or on YouTube where somebody says, you know, how we built this business and, you know, sent out 
you know, code emails and whatever. And the, the reality is, is just like any other in a growth channel, it's not, it's not straightforward. There's so many different, as you said, like so many factors involved in, in getting, getting that working that it does take a lot of experimentation. And I think it's also very easy to get disheartened when you're sending out these emails, you're excited about your product and the only replies you're getting are, you know, don't email me again or how did you get my email address, right? It's like- That's at least better than apathy, right? <laughs> yeah, true. Well, well let's, 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 let's talk about the, you know, in terms of who you were selling to initially and where you ended up uh, getting better results. So, so initially you started out like, it's like, hey, we're going to go and sell this to other tech companies and startups, right? Every startup, right? Especially because we came from other startups, you're like, well, I would love for my, you know, peers to like use us. Um, there's a sense of validation, sense of great logos, right? And it's a very, you know, 2018 to 2021 kind of mentality, right? Because then this startup raises the next round of financing, 10x is their team size, your ACV just went up by 10x. And so it's a bit of a circular kind of motion there. And in 2022, that's just 2023, that just isn't happening, right? Like I just, last year I spent six months negotiating, negotiating a 30K contract and that just never happened back in the day, right? And so a lot of founders are finding, you know, we're at a, in a very different era than we were in the last decade. And um, so what we found was working and very much stumbled into this is like the world's massive, right? And there, there's these like non-tech companies or there's even tech companies that are, based out of the Midwest, based out of you know, Canada, there's like small shops uh, internationally. There's the whole rest of the world really and their businesses are not as affected um, as you know the Silicon Valley tech companies. And so we've it essentially looks like going up market, going to a bit of a older uh, segment of the market, but turns out they have internal tooling problems, right? And so I will say we're still learning really how to sell to that, but we found good success there. I'm not saying we won't ever sell to startups, right? Definitely, well, we still have a startup plan, have a free tier, um, but it's just a timing perspective. The this the the tech startup market is not the best to be selling to. So that strikes me as a bit of a problem. What you just said makes sense, but you've got a horizontal product which as we, we we chatted about is 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 difficult to figure out the messaging for anyway now hasn't it become exponentially harder because you're going after all kinds of companies in all kinds of verticals with a horizontal product it is a very fair point i should have been clear we're going after specific verticals in these other parts of the world, right? Specifically for airplane, I think, if you look at financial services and healthcare, um, health tech, fintech, those have been especially good for us. And so the motion goes less from selling a platform to selling a solution, right? You're selling an answer to a series of problems that the engineering team has, that the support teams have, that the operations team has, and you have to understand how that fits in those verticals. So it is, it's not we do one vertical, maybe we're we focus on three at a time, um, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. It can't just be like anyone, you know, that's not in Silicon Valley. It's like specific targeted verticals outside of there. How did you figure out which verticals to pick? I mean, that, that I think as I've, I've seen so many founders struggle with that because, you know, you, you, you gotta, you gotta first of all, figure out what's the vertical, what's the messaging for this vertical? How do we reach those people? Is our go-to-market, you know, working, or is this just the wrong vertical and we should move on and and focus our energy elsewhere? So, how how did you pick? And you know, again, like, were there any lessons you learned from that in terms of maybe how not to pick a vertical market? The answer is you had to spend time and think and iterate, right? And so, it's a sheer combination of sheer luck and having hypotheses at the same time, and then just learning, right? So, we did have a hypothesis like. I think especially if you looked at the early conversations like fintech, right, had a lot of regulation, humans in the loop, healthcare, like anywhere that things can go wrong, but also they're sensitive processing. So these are probably good guesses, right? 
But then also, like, I don't know, one of our largest customers came in from a Google ad, right? And we were even targeting them, that kind of industry. And so sheer luck, right? Which is like partly why you just got to get yourself out there. Um, so it's really finding those initial conversations and then pulling on the thread, right? And really asking, like, why, why this company, why this space, like, what's special about that? And then refining your messaging, testing it, seeing if it works, trying again. Uh, so it really is just a lot of iteration. All right. Okay. So if outbound wasn't working, how were you reaching these people? So let's say you decide, you go through and you said, okay, fintech sounds like a great vertical for us to at least try and validate or invalidate our hypotheses that there's an opportunity there. But then how are you reaching these people? You really try like a bunch of channels, right? So we would go through investors, go through network, we would do um, messaging on LinkedIn, we would, um, you know, our head of sales had previous connections that he brought in. And so network, definitely try that. A lot of it was just, you know, SEO, SEM, people coming inbound. And so you would once in a while, you know, once a week get something from like a company that you've never had connections to. Uh, other times it's word of mouth, right? People moving companies or talking to their friends. So it's really you do everything and anything. Um, and you just gotta like, you gotta just spend the time. Sorry, all my answers come back to that. But it's just so, because like you even ask customers where they heard of you, right? And they'll say, oh, I don't know, maybe Hacker News. And I'm like, we haven't been on Hacker News for a few months now, you know? And it's like, definitely that's not the answer, but they just don't remember. And so, I, although I will say product launches are also a good way to do it, right? Make a big splash about what you're doing, get on Product Hunt, get on Hacker News, get on Twitter. Um, so, but again, it's just doing a lot of everything because it, it's all over the board. Yeah, yeah. I think the attribution problem is 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 really hard if you're doing a lot of things at the same time, because e- even if you have, even if you're able to put some kind of, you know, tracking link or whatever to figure out the source, maybe it wasn't that. Maybe that was the the third touch point that persuaded somebody to come and sign up, and maybe there was two or three other things that you'd done before that got their attention in the first place and got them interested in the product, even though they didn't take action at the time. And so, you know, who gets the credit for it? I don't know. I think it's always going to be hard, right? Because I've talked to marketing leaders and just go to market leaders at like various sizes. I don't think it's ever solved. I don't know. Maybe some people like have it like down to a fine, but like you can experiment, right? And you can, I think you can often tell, like if you start a new campaign and starting to like get more people in or you do an in-person event and like those like, like, so I think on the margins, you can sort of feel it, um, but it, it's noisy for sure. Um, one other thing we, we talked about, uh, you know, sort of the build versus buy um, sort of, you know, obstacle you have to overcome. Um, just going back to what I said earlier in terms of how, you know, when I went into airplane, how the the experience was, was so different to what, you know, I've seen with, with some of these other products. Was that a very intentional thing that you did in terms of, you know, we're going to make this feel like an ID where you have control over your source code and it's not like, you know, UI heavy, a no code product where you can add a little bit of code in the back. It's just, it just seems like quite a contrast. I just curious, like why you designed it that way. And, and especially talking about you know, building a great product and understanding customer problems. I assume there's a reason <laughs> behind that. Absolutely. I, I mean, that part, it has been very intentional, right? Um, part of Airplane is like recognizing that a lot of internal tools are in the critical path and engineers want to manage those tools like they would production systems, right? They want to build them faster, for sure. There's a different kind of SLA in some regard, but like a lot of develop- we want to meet developers where they are in terms of their workflow. And so while it's different from our competitors, it's actually very similar to the rest of our developers' lives, right? And so they can use GitHub, they can use code review, like some of them add unit testing, right? And so um, that's totally intentional because that's that's the ICP of who we serve. Um, and th- so those are the lives that, those are the personas whose lives we want to make better. Okay, let's uh, let's wrap up and get on to the lightning round. So I've got seven quick fire questions for you. Just try to answer them as quickly as you can. You ready? Yes, sir. What's one of the best pieces of business advice you've received? The internet is huge. Uh, I've said it a few times, but it really is. Uh, you, think, you think it's big, but then 10 exit, right? 100 exit. And so uh, it's a, the world's a really big place. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? I really loved, uh, this is really nerdy about tech history, but it's called Soft War. So software without the E. 
Um, it's a book about Larry Ellison in the early days of Oracle. Uh, it's really fun because it's written by this um, journalist, but he let Larry uh, Ellison write uh, in the footnotes. And so it's a bit of a dialogue and back and forth. And so uh, it's a great book. I haven't heard of that. Let's check it out. Uh, what's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? I think the good founders take their team on with them on the journey. Um, so you have to have your own direction of where you want to go and stuff. You have to bring the team with you. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Yeah, um, I've been trying to just do at least one thing each day, right? Um, it's a very classic uh, thing that uh, I've been told in the past as well. But what's your most important thing? Write it down and get it done. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? I don't know if I'd pursue this, but I find the so small software utilities you find on the internet just really fascinating, right? You try to do an HTML to PDF converter and you see that someone's like SEO optimized that to the top and they're probably making like some decent ad volume um, revenue from it, right? I'm sure it's really competitive, but it's just such an interesting corner of the internet that you like stumble into. I love playing with, with tools like that. Um, what's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? I'm colorblind and it's not that rare, but often doesn't come up conversation until like we're arguing over a mock and you realize, hey, this guy can't see the colors properly. So. <laughs> wow. Uh, and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Yeah, it's corny, but it's true. I have a nine month old um, baby boy. And so uh, it's been fantastic just going between like start of land and then, you know, hanging out with the uh, with him. And so it really just grounds you. Um, it's great. Definitely. Yeah, that's awesome. Great. Well, uh, Josh, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure kind of talking through the story and, and extracting some of the lessons uh, that you've learned along the way. If people want to check out Airplane, they can go to airplane.dev. And if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm just josh at airplane.dev. Um, so uh, shoot me a note. Love to chat. Thanks for joining me. And uh, I wish you and the team the best of success. Thank you, Omar. Cheers.